It's the savvy side of 9 to 5. Listen. Bueller. 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 Laugh. <laughs> and learn. Negotiation. This is what you do in business. This is The Focus Group with Tim Bennett. S-T-A-U-N-C-H. And John Nash. Keep your clothes looking neat and clean. We're all business. Except when we're not. Welcome to the Focus Group and the last week of Pride Month. The last time I can say top of the pride or happy pride before the leprechaun gets boxed and shelved till the next holiday. So you're so you're like you're like a corporation. You're just gonna do it in June. It wears super thin beyond that. John Nash here with my good friend and co-host Tim Bennett. Focusgroupradio.com is where you want to go to find out all about the show, the video, and the audio feed. And yes, folks, top of the pride to you, it's over. But before we let the leprechaun go, I would like to thank one of our listeners in Western Mass, Heather, who made my day by sending the following picture (laughs) to our letters at focusgroupradio.com email. And she took this cup, which apparently the cup already said pride on it, right? That's pre-printed. It's a styrofoam cup. And above the word pride, she wrote happy, and then she pride, comma, and then she wrote in John Nash, and then she took this picture of a leprechaun, That's or as Tim says, a leprechaun. A leprechaun. And she photographed it and sent it along. So thank you, Heather, from Western Mass. It made my day, made my week, possibly my year, because this means we've arrived. This, this mascot has arrived. Well, Top I've been, of the pride to you. I was trying to find it, and, and so after I made the, the faux pas of doing the leprechaun, <laughs> if I Googled it. Other and people have. There's leprechauns everywhere. There's a corn in the cob that's like a, le- <laughs> it's a leprechaun, and there's other things that people have done, and I posted them to our Facebook page uh, last week so that people could see that. Oh, my uh, God. Apparently, it's a thing, the leprechaun. I wonder if that's how, I wonder where I got it from. That's an odd. Just it's a pronunciation. You might have just said it you, you, without even thinking. Like leprechaun is leprechaun. one thing, but leprechaun. So whenever the pride leprechaun comes out, I'm reminded of the another story that I used to do. So we had a friend named John. Remember, John was hilarious. John did some of our our video collection for his own TV years ago. All the funny clips. And we're walking down Pride. We're walking down to. See the guy in Canada. No, that's Vince. You're thinking of Vince. Okay. No, John is here in New York. So. John and I and a bunch of friends are going to watch the parade. And, and we decide, like we're walking along, and John says to me, he goes, it's kind of like, a, the pride is like gay Christmas. <laughs> and I, we instantly were, we went into this thing where it's like, you know, it's almost like the gay Christmas carol. You know, the ghost of pride past, the ghost of pride present, the ghost of pride future come to visit Scrooge, who happens to be this queen who's a shut-in or something. And eventually... He sees the beauty of pride and goes to the window and throws the windows open and says, and he looks down and there's a, and as we tell the story, there's a young guy with a cap sleeve tee, big guns, shorty shorts, like a little pride boy in him. I say, I say, boy, what day is today? And he looks up and he says, well, why it's pride day. (laughs) Just like in Scrooge, right? Well, then go around to the corner, the store around the corner and get me the biggest dildo in the window. Why don't you make that a, 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 a film? A pride. It was called the Pride Day Carol. That's what it was. Pride, pride Day, Day Carol. Carol. That yeah, sounds it was hilarious. Be an entire takeoff on Dickens' Christmas, Christmas Carol. Carol with, the and then pride. we were, then we started to like that. Then we started drinking, and the parade began. And then there was the moment of silence. We were really serious. Then we went back to laughing about the Pride Day Carol. And we were trying to think of what was Pride Day past. 
what was Pride Day? What was Pride, the ghost of Pride present? And what was the ghost of Pride future going to be like? So it had, I think it's ripe with opportunity. Oh, it's, got, it's great. You should trademark it. I, I'm doing it right now on, on video and audio. Trademarked. <laughs> <laughs> the focus group, Pride Day Carol. Pride Day Carol. So then it went into like top of the pride, and then that day, as the day wore on, it was really hot. We so had, the leprechaun was your mascot of choice. Yes, and it, because it was the one that elicited the most hilarity. Whenever you'd walk up to somebody on the street, and we happy I, pride, and John and I would be like happy pride or top of the pride to you. <laughs> People would just start laughing and like walk on, and I thought, okay, the leprechaun's the one that's got to stay. Well, it's got the rainbow pot of gold. Mm -hmm. You got the whole thing. It's got a lot of things that work. So what have in your mouth. I have a Ricola because I, I'm coming down with a little bit of a summer head cold, and you just told me, so go out and sweat it off. Get that heart rate up. Sweat it off. I don't know you had anything in your mouth. Well, it, I had to. I had to because um, my throat was a little scratchy. And you, you do a thing where you drop your. I put it in the little little drink. But I can't. Yeah, I can't drink. Why can't out. you do that? I have to wash this. Blow it out. You've had worse things. Oh in your my mouth. God! Wait. Oh, now it's clean. <laughs> You've had worse things in your mouth. We all have. I blow it out that every remind, week. That reminds me of that. Someone that oh that thing that you and I were reading on the comment board of something one time where this guy was complaining <laughs> about a rest it was about the bare naked chef. Right. Someone was complaining about how dare he cook without a shirt on, on. over a pot of tomato sauce or something. And then someone... Because the hair would get into And it. someone further down in the common thing goes, gay men have had their mouths in a lot of worse places than, you know. Well, that's that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, because <laughs> that, that commenter was very specific about where someone had been. <laughs> you don't mind diving in and eating ass, but you're going to do... You're going to worry... Yeah, you're going to worry about the hair and the sauce. There you go. That's what Typical. They Not that you and I do any of that sort of things. So that that's Pride Month. Bob marched last week. Um, Did he? And he had... Uh, Did he do his little little shorty shorts? Oh, my God. Okay, so his company gave them pride shirts. Then there was like a, a rainbow. Like it almost looked like a paintbrush had done a bunch of different stripes of color. He put these little sequin jewels on. And then he bought a pair of... Bedazzled it. Bought a pair of shorts, and the pattern was anchors. And he sat for hours, and he made he jeweled each anchor. Red, red. going to wear them? They all, the well, a lot of it... Well, he saved the shorts for a while, but a lot of the jewels fell off, you know, because it's, it's not. He was dancing. He was, was walking high. along. And he saved his shirt, and he was afraid to wash it because the jewels will come off. And I said, why are you saving this stuff? Because he can't help himself. A, and, you know, his company has an archive. Like, they have an archive of company things. I thought, I, I said, are you kind of in the back of your head thinking Bob's top of the pride shirt is going to make it into the archive? And he just does this brief thing where he, no, 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 no. I'll have to get rid of it because I can't wash it and it's covered, it. you know, it's dirty from marching. But they had a great day. He uh, marched with his company and uh, had a lot of fun. He said the parade was extremely efficient this year. Well, it needed to be. They shortened the route. I want to march next year. Okay. Well, you and I just don't want to march. We, we want to march. Either we want to be in a vehicle, float. be on a float. You I have a couple to be ideas. A, we wanted to be on a float in the Vegas Pride. Well, you were going to do. We wanted to do the MGM thing. I wanted to be. We, want, we were going to recreate Little House in the Prairie. You can't now. Laura Ingalls all upset. You saw that. Oh in the my books. God! Yeah. Can't anything anymore. By the way, Laura Ingalls, the original author of. Yeah, because this. she's she she talked badly about mm -hmm. Native Americans and something else. Mm-hmm. You go back, you know, you go back to any of these people's past far enough, you're going to start finding stuff you don't want to find. And suddenly, you know. Well, did you know, so I, I only saw Adam Sank, who has a show over on DNR, DNR yeah. which we're, we're broadcast over there as well um, on their network. But he had talked about, he had just found out, and I guess he said he heard it from Howard Stern. That? 
that there's two things that a lot of people say all the time, and I guess he said that people just say in, in, in language, and they were talking about, so there was someone on Fox that said, you're out of your cotton pick in mind, and the black person that was that's on there a, got I very the, offended. Yeah, that's a common phrase. Well, people say it, yeah. But apparently, it's, so it got very offensive. The guy mm -hmm. lost his job. Really? Yeah. Taking the guy that said, you're out of your cotton pick in mind. Because he said it to an African-American. Right, but I, but, yeah. All right, no, no, that's so, just the, the ground, yeah. So the other two that apparently lots of people say that are considered now racist, you're not allowed to say, is long time no see and no can do. Did you hear about this? Guys, are you aware of this? We got, Garrett. we have John on video, Garrett on audio. The, I, I no. say no can so do quite a lot. And well, you, you're not allowed to. They're, they're uh, racial slurs against the Asian community because they were adopted back in the late 1800s when they brought in all the Chinese workers. And it's broken English and that it come it had come from there. This is according to, to the Post and Adam Sanks thing. So saying things like no can do or long time no see was broken. Now, and then somebody came back and said... Well, literally, that's the translation in Chinese. The English trans translation is long time no, no see. see. Yeah. They're not, it's not making fun of them. That's the actual literal translation. But anyway, so I thought to myself, you're not allowed to say anything anymore. Well, don't you think that, that whatever the origin might have been, that its use is decoupled from that and evolved to the point where it's just literally like an idiom or something that just we say? Well, I laugh because Hall & Oates had that f famous song in the 80s, right? I can't go for that. Can't yeah. go. No can do. It's a lyric, right? You know, take them down. You're not allowed to do it. So I don't want to hear any of that language out of you three. <laughs> John, Garrett, and John. Yeah, okay. We love you long time. <laughs> now there, there you go. Wait, what was that? Me me love you long love you, time? Love you long Wasn't that David Sedaris did... um. Wasn't that oh, one of he, books? he, 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 no, he, one of his books was Me Talk Pretty One Talk Day. Talk Pretty One Day. Yeah. About his life when he lived in France for a while and he was trying to learn French and speak English at the same time. And I will say, I was reprimanded once by the Japanese for not showing the car on a wetty road. <laughs> and the guy. A wetty road. He was really, he was, a, he was a senior Japanese executive and he was quite arrogant and professed to know English quite well and he did, better than I knew Japanese. And he went at me about how come I didn't show the car on a wetty road, and I'd about had it. And I just looked at him and I said, I did show it on a wetty road. And all the Americans were dying. Mortified, Mortified. right? Because I was like, how come you're not showing car on wetty road? I showed it on a wetty road. <laughs> did you actually yell? Yeah, I yelled right back at him. Of course, I ended up only being there about another week or two. But what was around that time? <laughs> well, because I had had it. Because <laughs> I had you're not had talking, it. How come you're not talking about the gas mileage? Because it's the worst in its class. Well, you don't have to say. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. This I do remember. Okay. And you were only How come seven. you don't show it on a wedding road? I showed it on a wedding road. You're only seven days. Uh, that was a piece of yeah. crap. Anyway. So, um, great show today in, in honor of the last uh, last week of Pride Month, June. We're going to be welcoming um, Esther McGowan and Pat Owens from the Visual AIDS organization. And, and, and me and Tim want to start doing more of this, uh, exposing the listeners and, and our audience to some very, very cool LGBT-focused organizations and what they're doing. And, and I think you're going to be very surprised by what you already know about Visual AIDS from, from some of the amazing work that they've done. So they're coming on later in the show. And, of course, in the beginning, 
there's our banter, which you've been enjoying immensely right now. You think? <laughs> no can do. <laughs> I, I can't believe I'm not allowed to say that anymore. No, I'd say no can do or a long time no uh, see. But the, but the, I want people, it all stopped. People even text that. You're not allowed to do it, John. I just got that very same text not more than two days ago from a friend who just got back from a business trip. And he goes, hey, let's get together for lunch, dot, 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 long, long time, time no, no see. see. I mean. It's racist. Uh, I don't know. I... So did you enjoy the rest of your Pride Month? Uh, you know, I told you I wanted to march, and yes, I did. Um, but I also was reading an awful lot of essays. You and I had, gosh, it's probably three or four years ago now, we wrote a piece for the Huffington Post. Yeah, we did. Where we had said that we thought Pride should be on one singular day. At least day. one holiday. Like a, it should be one day. Garrett was asking about right. that just before the show. Rather than, and I think it was San Francisco, Chicago, and New York, and then some other little cities that were, were harder to get to, perhaps, all celebrated the last Sunday of June. But Philadelphia did, I think, the first Sunday. Somebody else does the third Sunday, second Sunday, whatever. But I just always felt that it would have more impact if there was just one nationwide, day nationwide. nationwide. That and then maybe, maybe, regardless where you are. And then maybe later on uh, um, you do a special pride festival or something. So th there's the holiday, and then maybe when the weather is different. Or well, in October, there's the coming out. Yep. Was it October special 10th? coming out day. Right. Yeah. And then a lot of people do that. But even in Las Vegas, when you're talking about... Uh, their pride is... Their pride, I think, is in the into fall. fall because of the heat. Yeah, the heat. I think Florida is either early or mm -hmm. late. Wasn't some, of our, yeah, March, some are earlier than June, some are later than June. Yeah, so. But once again, what do we say, Tim? Top of the pride to you. That's I'm going to get you an outfit. For next year. A well, leprechaun. Not a leprechaun, a leprechaun outfit. outfit. I'm going to get you a corn on the cob and a, and a <laughs> corn on the cob outfit with a top hat and the whole thing. Uh, and a unicorn with a rainbow. All right, so what caught your eye? What caught your eye? Here's what Tim and John found. I had two quick ones that caught my eye. Um, I struggled this week. I had a lot of, lot of things, but some of them I thought would get in the weeds too much. But uh, So these two headlines caught my eye. The first one was, he stole her credit card, but picked the wrong place to use it. So a guy, this is from a restaurant in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. It, uh, the waitress was Flora Lunsford, 58. She had her car broken into a couple of days earlier, and her, her pocketbook was stolen, or her purse was stolen, her wallet, all her credit cards, her ID. And uh, they couldn't find, obviously, they, they didn't find it or whatever. This guy comes in and orders breakfast, and then he goes to pay for it with her credit card. <laughs> it's the place she... So she looks at it and sees her name on there like, hmm. <laughs> so, so this brainchild, Shan, Shaman West, S-H-A-M-O-N, 21 years old, um, she called, so she took the credit card, she went and called the police and said, there's somebody here using my credit card. Which was stolen. Which was stolen two days ago. So the police came, and uh, they went out to his car and, in fact, did find her wallet, her driver's license, all the stuff that he had stolen out of her car. And, of course, he was arrested. And they said the cops laughed and said, you know, you would have thought since he stole her license with her picture on it, he'd have recognized the waitress that maybe he shouldn't have used. He didn't even bother looking at the license, right? I mean, he just took it, yeah. So that was, that was... Uh, That's classic. I always like that sort of, that karma sort of thing. I gave you a three. I gave you a three, yeah. yeah. Sophisticated crime for that county, that... <laughs> Columbia County, right over the Connor nice sitting, yeah. And, um, and then this other one I picked only because it reminded me of, there was a, a time in Philadelphia, if you, this goes back to, um, to language, 
there was a guy, a guy here that went crazy in New York about the the restaurant workers speaking Spanish. Oh yes, that was just a, the attorney. Literally two weeks ago, there was a guy that flipped out at like a salad place right. or something. And there's a guy in Philadelphia, Gino Steaks, and he ended up having a sign that he put right out on his. Um, where you go and get a cheesesteak, and it said, "If you're not speaking English, you're not. We're not going to serve you. You had to speak English. You want any anything other than oh, English?" Is there an unintended consequence here? What happened with that? Well, people tried to boycott and everything. He didn't care. He said, "You had to speak English." My my relatives came over here and only spoke Italian. You got to learn English. Yeah. So it was English only. You got a big sign. So this Dunkin' Donuts created their own little storm here in Baltimore. So there was a sign that the manager posted, and it urged. Any customer to report any workers they heard screaming or yelling in foreign languages at the Dunkin' Donuts. And they said, if you hear any of our staff shouting in a language other than English, please call. And they gave the phone number. Immediately give your name and, and report this employee. Then you're going to receive a coupon for a free coffee and pastry. And so one of the customers said they thought it was kind of odd that they were only concerned about screaming in a foreign language. They thought, should you be screaming in any, any language, language at the Dunkin' well, Donuts? And the key word is screaming. Right, screaming right? Yeah. and shouting. So a number of people, and they said this reporter did try to call the Dunkin' Donuts and find out what was going on. And they said that the person who put the sign up is no longer employed there. But he had good intentions when he placed the sign because he, he based it on his own personal judgment and trying to address some customer service and satisfaction issues about how the store was run. But obviously, the Dunkin' Donuts does not adhere to the policy, nor do they condone it. Yeah, condone it. Well, my like they said in this day and age, you're allowed to do those sort of things, and and then we have a Supreme Court that will probably say okay. Um, mine is somewhat far afield from those two hilarious ones. A thief, a thief who has no brain in his head. You don't go back to the scene of the crime. Use a credit card. At the scene of the crime, yeah, you don't do that. It's Arkansas. No can do. <laughs> Here's my credit card. Long time no, no see. Do. Long time no see. I didn't see that. Long. Uh, mine's very different. So as a kid, I was always fascinated by Pike's Peak. And in fact, my grandfather gave me a rock collection from Pike Peak. And there's a picture when you lift up the lid of the cog train, because it had one of those little uh, cog trains that go up at the top. And uh, Pike's Peak is also a place that Tim knows very well, because every time I mention it, you talk about how going down from the top of Pike's Peak really tests a car's brakes, right? Because they actually have pull-off stations. You have to pull off and they measure the temperature of your brakes to make sure that they don't So steep. Out. So you have to stop at these checkpoints on the way down. So I saw this, I, I read a blog routinely called Jalopnik. It's for car gearheads, and I, I'm always fascinated by it. And uh, Volkswagen actually now holds the world's record or the, the record for the fastest drive up from the base of the mountain to the top and it was of a, for an electric vehicle it's an electric and it looks like this really super duper race car designed that way to minimize atmospheric friction because the air quality changes as you go up every uh uh, every 1000 feet or every 350 feet so the old record was held um by, uh, what's his name, Sebastian Loeb, and it was in an internal combustion engine, and he made it to the top of Pikes Peak in 8 minutes, 13 seconds, 13.878 seconds in 2013, has not been, its record stands, and now this electric car that VW did, 7 minutes, 57.148 wow. seconds. Um, 
12 miles, 156 curves in under eight minutes. Unheard of accomplishment. You've been on the road? No, I'm dying. I, will, I would love to cycle the road, actually. No, you won't. First of all, it's dirt. They only, they only, there are one, there are a couple of paved sections because he was on a paved section mm -hmm. until you get to the very top. And here's the best part. You're riding that road. <laughs> no, you might, I, I, maybe I shouldn't ride it. But so the driver of the car, uh, Romain Dumas, said there are two things about the electric vehicle that really, really made it perfect for this kind of a time trial. And we talked about this when we were driving the e-Golf, the uh, Volkswagen's electric or their rechargeable car torque. And the fact that it did not rely on oxygen to uh, for the combustion, the internal combustion engine. So I was with Tim in Colorado at, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, that 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 sad um, Loveland Pass. Loveland Pass, and we had we were driving up in the mountains, and as we were going up to this other continental divide, continental divide, the car was really sluggish. And Tim said the reason why is because as we're going up, there's less air, and it's not taking enough in, and it really is an affecting thing. So electric is a pretty cool thing. And so what this driver was able to do is he would be able to slow down before corner, and the minute he felt comfortable cornering, he would nail it, and the torque was so great that the car just shot off. But the funniest thing to me was this one. The car only had enough power in the batteries to make it to the top in one run. Uh-oh. Literally, by the time the car got to the top, it crossed the finish line, and the charge went to zero. <laughs> so you had to charge it up. To yeah, he had now. to. So, John, I thought I put a video, a little video in there of, of yeah, here's what it looks like taken off. Um, it looks like a normal car, right? I mean, you wouldn't think it was electric. Except, look at that thing. So when it get, when you get up into Pikes Peak after the, the pavement area there, it goes into dirt and gets very, very steep and quite scary. There's no guardrails. Yeah, look at like and, what? Um, it, it gets quite scary. And if you, you remember the Beartooth Pass. Watch this. I, I would go right off the edge yeah, there. It's scary. It's not, not, a lot of other car companies also use Pikes Peak as challenges or, or, or for, for testing. And uh, it's nice here because if you're watching the video, it's closed, but usually the line is just There's a line of cars, cars. right? Yeah, you just putt, 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 putt up, up Pikes Peak and down. Look at how high. Wow. You know, the, the other issue they're trying to figure out with electric cars as they're becoming more popular is that because it is not, the cars are not going to need oil changes. You're not going to need a lot of the things mechanical that a, stuff. Yeah. mechanical stuff that a gas engine would need is the service business at car dealerships is certainly not, it's going to take a hit. So they're trying to figure out how do you balance selling an electric car that needs very little maintenance, maintenance. From, yeah. the, from the mechanical standpoint on the engine. So it'll be an interesting thing to see what happens. Although I love the electric cars. I would like to get one. Uh, the, the only thing I'll finish the story with, though, is the other thing was the uh, weight, power to weight ratio is a big thing with electric. So the heavier the battery, the harder it is to, it holds more charge, right. but you're going to move the car in a different way than the light battery. So the, once they figure out, once they nail battery technology, and to be more efficient and faster charging, I think we're going to see these cars take off. And if you've ever driven an electric car, try the e-Golf, one of our most fun test yeah. drives. I mean, my God, that car was great. I would love to have an electric car, as I said. So our, our uh, business birthday. Everyone does celebrity birthday greetings, but the Focus Group is the only show in the universe that celebrates business birthdays. Born today, June 27th, 1899. Died in 1981 at 81 years old. It was Juan Terry Trippi. He was the American commercial aviation pioneer, entrepreneur, and founder of Pan American Airways. 
Ah. One of the iconic airlines of the 20th century. He was also instrumental in the revolutionary advances in the airline industry, including the production of the Boeing 314 Clipper, uh, which was uh, open Trans-Pacific airline travel, the Stratoliner, which helped with cabin pressurization, and he also introduced the Boeing 747, which brought in the era of jumbo jets. They initially thought that it was just going to be for long hauls, but uh, they made the jumbo jet, as you know, the 747 for long hauls for, for people and for the tourist trade. And uh, so they said after graduation, he graduated from Yale. He went and worked on Wall Street. He was bored. So he raised some money from friends in 1922. What? He was bored. Bored. But I'm okay. <laughs> so he became bored. So he raised enough money from an old, for some of his old Yale classmates and uh, bought some stock. He sold them stock in a new airline that he started, or a taxi service, and that he based out of Florida. And their first trip was from Key West to Havana in 1927. And then from there, he built it up. He bought an old airline from China and a number of other little airlines along the way, and then eventually turned into Pan American. And Pan Am was the, in my opinion, that circle that logo, and it used to be on that building, uh, Park Avenue, was the symbol of elegant air travel. Yes, right? no, it was. They, they were they were the gold standard, and they said that uh, they continued to expand uh, throughout after the World Wars, specifically responsible for many innovations in the airline industry, particularly as I mentioned, the tourist class, so allowed people to travel more economically. He thought airlines were a way to help foster world peace. Because people would get to know one another better. And it also led to the fact of opening the Intercontinental Hotel Group, which Pan Am owned. Because if you flew somewhere, you needed you to, stay somewhere somewhere to stay somewhere to stay. Yeah. And uh, he ended up dying in uh, 1968 after a second stroke. I believe he died in the building in New York. The Pan Am, the Pan Am, Pan Am building. building. So happy birthday, Juan. That's a cool business birthday. Very trippy. I'm saying trippy. I, I, I don't know if it's trip. T-R-I-P-P-E. Trippy? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it that way, too. Yeah. Um, I went to school with a kid named Trippy Ireland, so I'm thinking that's how he said it. Top of the pride. <laughs> top of the pride. Well, there you go. It all comes back. No can do. That's good. I, I'm still stuck on that one. Hey, as many of you know, Deep Discount is a partner of ours here on the Focus Group, and we appreciate them working with us, and we love it when you shop at their site. Uh, June is almost over. Site-wide sale. Fill your basket. Hit click and buy, because everything's on sale at the site. And in honor of pride, top of the pride to you, um, I've chosen two titles before we talk about the new release, which I'm actually uh, really jazzed about. <laughs> actually, this whole month coming up of new releases from Deep Discount is phenomenal. Quick one for you. Um, a 1998 movie called Gods and Monsters starring Ian McKellen playing the famous director James Whale, who, who directed Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein. It also stars Lynn Redgrave and why am I spacing on Brendan Fraser, who plays Clayton Boone. It's an interesting movie. Have you seen the movie? No. I highly recommend it. It takes place in the later part of James Whale's life and... Um, he has an attraction to Clayton Boone, played by Brendan Fraser, but nothing ever comes of that. But they do form an interesting relationship, so it's called Gods and Monsters. And the other pick that I had was a PBS series based on Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City. There's a 20th anniversary DVD collection available at Deep Discount. I think it's six or seven episodes long. Bob and I have such fond memories of watching 
this. On, did you watch it on PBS? PBS? Yeah. Laura Linney, Olympia Dukakis. I mean, there's some fantastic character actors in here. I, the mu- I could sum up the music in my head. It was a really well done adaptation of those of that book. They did other ones later, but this one, yep. this first one, this Tales of the City, was one of my favorites. So I highly recommend it. And rounding out the uh, the summer sale, which uh, is happening at Deep Discount, I picked to round out our our, um, our movies for me for June. I picked one which I was surprised about. So I did the top 100 movies of the 20th century. I went through that list and picked one, and then I picked the top 50 movies, one out of there that every gay man should own. To get your card. To yeah. get your card. And the top 100, I was actually surprised because I thought this movie did not really do as well as, as maybe um, other movies of the 20th century. Four Weddings and a Funeral. This is a big one for a lot of people. Yeah, I love this movie. It came out um, originally in 1994 and starred Hugh Grant and a woman that I always had a crush on, Andy McDowell. She was a little bit like my Molly Ringwald, too. You know, there was something about Andy McDowell I liked. But it, it, it takes people through these four weddings and a funeral and these friends that are all interrelated. It's a romantic comedy, and I think um, anytime it's on, I, it's one of those Watch where it. if I'm flipped through, Any point, I you leave it on. Yeah. And the other one is just such a cliche, but what I love about this one is uh, Mommy Dearest. And John turned me on to this in Colorado when we were at Loveland. So th- this is funny how the show comes together. It all together. came together, yeah. But really ruined Faye Dunaway's career, supposedly. But the best part about it, this came out in 1981, and it's about the... the door. Um, Christina Crawford. Christina Crawford wrote the biography, mm-hmm. her biography about kind of his horrible childhood with the mother. The best part about this, though, is you need to get the edition that they have at Deep Discount. And it's it's under thirteen dollars, but it has the commentary from John Waters and Lipsinka. Oh, and so you watch the movie, but put the comment turn the commentary turn track. the commentary on from John Waters, and you'll laugh all over again. You'll see the movie in a whole different way because he'll say, "Look at this here." Remember when she attacks Christina and she's oh, no, the, up, yeah, and John Waters is going, "Look at you can see her panties," you know, and he's <laughs> and he's like, and he's beating the crap out so of their daughter the- with the publicist sitting right there in the house, and so he brings out a whole different a whole different feel for the film. So get get mommy dearest with. Um, the John Waters commentary and, and Lip Sinka and, and well. laugh, laugh, laugh. Now, along that, uh, what a nice thread into the release of the week, and it's on Criterion. So when I say Criterion Collection, that means buy it right now because it's going to be chock full of extras, yep. including interviews and and extra footage. And it's the movie Female Trouble. And if you're a John, if you're a Divine slash John Waters fan, this is a must have. And what scene do we know so well? When Dawn Davenport comes down on Christmas Day and she's expecting to get a pair of cha-cha heels and she opens this box, these aren't cha-cha heels, and she destroys the Christmas tree. Oh, Dawn, oh, Dawn, and the parents are crying. Shot on 16 millimeter, I think mostly around Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland, right? Yeah. Uh, it's one of John Waters' classic films featuring Divine, and I... Uh, that's yeah. What I'm going to say is I'm almost speechless because that cha-cha heel scene alone with Divine in that pink, you know, yeah. Teddy thing. Well, while you're there, you should order all the John John Waters Waters films at, at deep discount. And if they're on Criterion, because he he's kind of the Shakespeare for gays, I think John yeah. Waters. So hey, be sure to uh, go to FocusGroupRadio.com, click on the deep discount logo, and start shopping away. Right, Garrett. 
Thanks, Deep Discount. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we've got uh, the folks from Visual Aids joining us. We have Esther McGowan, the executive director, as well as Pat Owens, who's the board chair. And they're going to come talk to us about uh, this great organization based here in Manhattan. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Brought to you by Volkswagen. Visit VW.com to learn more. Focus on the savvy side of 9 to 5 with the Focus Group. Try, really try. Listen, laugh, and learn with Tim and John. I never try anything. I just do it. Hey, welcome back to the Focus Group. John Nash with Tim Bennett. Focusgroupradio.com is where you want to go to find out all about our show. And joining us now are folks from Visual Aids. Next to me, well... I always do that, and in the audio, it doesn't matter because we're in a studio, right? <laughs> so we have Ro, um, Esther McGowan, who's the executive director of Visual Aids, and we have Pat Owens, who's the Visual Aids board chair. And um, I've known Pat for many, many years. So what, what do we what do we say when we do that on when they do it when they give a, a fact about something? A fact about something? Well, like if you said I'm the reporter and I've known the person I'm interviewing for uh, full transparency. Oh, for, yeah, in the spirit of transparency. In the transparency. Spirit, in spirit of transparency. Yeah, I've known right. Pat for a long time. How long? Long time. Decades. 30, 40? Decades. Decades. Somebody asked me how long I knew you, yeah. and I said it was probably close to 40 now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. a high school, sophomore yeah. year. Yeah. Sophomore year. I've known John as long as you've known him, so I'd say it's less than 40. <laughs> that's, that's not, that's not possible because so you guys exactly. you guys are joining us from an amazing organization and i've known about it uh because since i've known pat and his passion for the the uh, organization but it's called visual aids yes. and you're newly installed executive director new new as in one maybe year. Yeah, yeah a year now year, which is great and i've actually been with the organization for going on six years. Uh, first, I was associate director for quite a few years, and then I was uh, promoted to executive director last summer, and it's been amazing. So why don't you guys give us a quick thumbnail of, if, if it's even possible, of visual aids? Sure, absolutely. I'll, I'll defer to Esther. Okay, wonderful. Um, I It's a, an, a small organization that does big projects. We've been around for 30 years. Um, it's our 30th anniversary year this year. And uh, so we were founded in 1988, which was at the height of the AIDS crisis at the time, the, what we kind of call the original AIDS crisis. There is still an AIDS crisis. I want to stress that. Um, but um, this was at a time um, before uh, the pharmaceutical industry had um, created the drugs Anything. that are helping. Exactly. Anything. When yeah. it was very much a crisis with people passing away. And so... Um, it, this organization was created specifically by the art world as a way to both use art in activism and, and think of ways that the art world could create its own activism and be effective in the fight against AIDS. And then as the organization continued, another main part of our mission became um, becoming a, an archive for images of artwork by HIV-positive artists and artists who were passing away uh, because what was happening at the time you know, in the late 80s, in particular, there was a lot of misinformation about AIDS and oh, HIV. Yeah. And so, um, for example, in New York City, you would walk down the street and you would see someone's entire um, group of belongings just thrown out on the sidewalk because family members didn't, you know, many people were not um, 
close any longer with their family members. Their families didn't want anything to do with them because they had AIDS. Um, the landlord didn't want anything to do. Their neighbors didn't want anything to do with them because they were worried that they would become infected. They didn't understand um, what was happening with the virus. And so people would literally take someone's belongings when they passed away and just throw them all out on the street. And so... Um, Artwork and dumpsters. Yeah. Art, yeah. And so if someone was an someone's artist... Yeah, exactly. And so if someone was an artist, that included their artwork. So you would walk down the street in these village and you would see 15 paintings just in the garbage. And so um, arts administrators at the time who were working um, in museums and art galleries thought, we need to stop this. We need to sort of start, um, find a way to, to at least archive the images of this work. We, can, we don't have space to archive the work, but at least try to archive the images of the work for future generations so that people's legacies won't be lost. And so um, it was actually a, a wonderful artist who unfortunately passed away named Frank Moore, who, uh, and I encourage everyone to look up Frank Moore, Google him, his work is gorgeous. Um, and he was the one of the main instigators of this idea of a, a visual archive of artwork by H.I.V. How, how long artists. did he, he live after the he started he passed, the archiving project. He passed away in 2001. Oh, okay, I so... Believe. I need to double-check that, but I, uh, off the top of my head, I believe it was 2001. Time, yeah. And he um, started the archive project in 94 um, with a gentleman named David Hirsch. And so, um, uh, you know, Frank actually lived quite a bit longer than many people at the time uh, who were living with HIV and AIDS, but he did unfortunately pass away. When it, it says in, uh, in the bio that visual uh, AIDS is a activist organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And a lot of times when you hear the word activist, you're thinking it's it's kind of in your face or it's going to be aggressive, similar, maybe act up. Mm -hmm. yep. and I know you're not the same, but yeah. so I wonder, how do you... So how do you guys define what an activist organization is? Absolutely. Well, it's actually really interesting that you bring up that word because that's a word that's come back into our culture in a very big way in the last few years because of everything that's going on politically. So, um, you know, in the early days of visual aids, we used art to create activist projects. So, for example, we would work with very famous artists like, for example, Glenn Ligon or uh, Barbara Kruger. Barbara Kruger, our sure. well-known artists um, who are artists that use words uh, in their artwork, which so it's kind of a perfect way, uh, per, they're perfect artists to engage in activism. And we would uh, commission them to make an artwork that somehow shares information about HIV and AIDS. So at the time, it was uh, those projects started happening in the early 90s. So there would even be, for example, a hotline. There would be a, an, an artwork and it would have imagery. It would have a call to action around educating yourself about HIV. And then there would even be a hotline at the bottom for people to call. And what's interesting is um, these projects are called broadsides. I and mean, that's kind of an old-fashioned word, but it's, oh, yeah, it's literally like the idea of a poster, a fold-out, uh -huh. something that goes on the wall that you can actually pass out to people in an activist setting so that you're actually sharing information. And um, they would be made, the artist would create the original artwork, and then Visual Aids would create an uh, eight and a half by 11 black and white version that literally, so it could be photocopied for free. You know, people would go, this is actually very common with ACT UP as well, is people always knew someone that worked at Kinko's. So you would, you would get your buddy who worked... <laughs> yeah, exactly. This was how it was done. So you got your buddy who worked overnight at Kinko's when the managers weren't paying attention, and they would run off, you know, a thousand of these things, and they would be distributed for free. And um, looking back on them now, they're really exciting projects, in part because they were, they're really well-known artists, um, but also, you know, it was a, it's a very iconic way to use art 
in activism. And what's interesting um, is that now these same pieces that were photocopied well, at Kinko's and given out for free are actually hanging in museums. Museums, I was going to say, um, yeah. yeah. So it's an interesting, and I actually did an event at the Whitney Museum recently because they have, have actually still have a wonderful activism show that's up right now looking at um, the different ways that artists use in activism over the years, and there's a section on HIV and AIDS, and they included these broadsides, but they're you know, framed on the wall in the museum, and um, we did an event, and I spoke, I told everyone at the event about... How they were made. Exactly, that they, they were from, meant to be given right out. Of yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> now, would you classify um, the day without art as an activist... Well, both of them. Could think, you tell us about Day Without sure. Art? Well, both, there, there are two things. There are two very uh, iconic projects that are in the DNA of visual aids, and one is everyone knows the Red Ribbon Project. So, I mean, that was you know the uh, that was as, yeah, as so as, we have that, some examples. As, as visual aids was being formed by these curators and artists, uh, they like the Kinkos. They wanted to come up with something that was a very sim very direct, very simple, recognizable symbol. Um, so, for, so, for those so, listening or watching, the Red Ribbon came from. From visual aids. Yeah. From visual aids. That, that, that was news to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's we news to a lot about, of people. We all yeah. knew yeah. about mm -hmm. the Red Ribbon, and John and right, I were right, talking right, before, right. and I said, my gosh, you're kidding me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting but, because uh, um, it's become so ubiquitous right. in culture. You don't think of someone thought of it and made it, right. but it was actually the, um, the what was called the Artist Caucus of Visual Aids, yeah. which was a group of artists uh, led by um, an artist named Alan Frame, who's someone we still work with a lot today. And they literally sat around a table and uh, came up with this idea. And it came from the Iraq War, because yeah. I don't know if people remember, so it was 1991, so the Iraq War, uh, the people first. were tying, the first Iraq yeah, War, exactly. Right, right, right. People were tying yellow ribbons around trees and fences. Yes, for bringing the soldiers back right, home. Right. And they thought, well, we have a war. We have another war. It's the war uh, on AIDS. Interesting. Interesting genesis and, um, the idea. Yeah, and fighting against the, the Republican administrations who were burying um, AIDS in what they talked about. They were, you know, millions and billions of dollars were going to the Iraq war, and very little was going to fund uh, AIDS research. So they came up with the idea of a ribbon for AIDS. Um, and um, the whole idea of it was that it would be always given away for free, uh, that, you know, you make them, anyone can make them and use them and wear them. You could just buy your own ribbon and put it on. And, and some people, when they find out we... Um, created it, people think, oh, you must have a lot of money because the Red Ribbon is everywhere. No. It was never copyrighted, and that was intentional because it's meant to be a public activist but project. over the years, groups would get together and make the ribbons with the pen, um, and it was a way for um, HIV artists, um, lots of people in the community to come together just to talk about the crisis and while they're making while they're making mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. ribbons with pins. So, and that still happens today. We still have uh, these ribbon these ribbon bees, like quilting bees, that happen around the country, um, and it's a way to bring the community together. So, two aspects of it: one is it's it's free and replicable, um, but also it's a way of bringing a community together and also helping continue to raise awareness. The red ribbon is still so iconic, um, and everyone knows exactly what it means, and it's everywhere. And so, when a company like uh, I'll use the example because I think Gap did it. Mm -hmm. They they were doing the candles or whatever, and they had the image of yep. the, the right. ribbon. It was mm -hmm. it was the one campaign or something. I'm trying to remember what it was. Yeah, and they have a campaign called Red, Red. as well. Red. Did they work with you guys in that, or that's no. just no um, organizations or uh, corporations or anyone who uses the red ribbon doesn't have to get approval from us, as, and never has. You know, even when it was made into a postage stamp. Um, it, we didn't. Um, I mean, and a U.S. postage stamp. Yeah, U.S. postage stamp. Like yeah, some, exactly. You know, like yeah, little yeah. hallmark thing. Yeah. It was like. You regret that? 
Um, no, because it's uh, well. Oh, no, because no, you're, yeah. you're, you're. I mean, you obviously. <laughs> well, we don't work for free, right? Right. Right. So, right. Do, do you do you guys regret the fact that maybe you could have collected money, not it's, knowing? Of course, it, you the, know, that, is that the fine line of it, the art and? Well, it could, yeah, it could have. Been, I mean, yeah, of course, it could have been a revenue source if it were copyrighted. But then, if it were copyrighted, it also would have been very limited in terms of how it could be distributed, how people could use it, and ultimately. Our goal is to raise awareness as broadly as we possibly possibly can using a visual image, using a visual art. So um, that probably ultimately would have been uh, took us in a direction of being a very different organization and probably not as effective as an organization because we'd be managing a copyright all the time instead of being grassroots, being out in the community with artists and with arts projects in a way that continues to raise awareness and engage lots of people. And also, it makes us very responsive to what is still, you know, the AIDS crisis. It's different now, but it still exists. I mean, it's with, you know, HIV criminalization, uh, with women uh, who have HIV, um, with people of color, on, you know, and so there's the, we, we seem to be keep on, I would say reliving, but we still have the same experience of the HIV crisis um, as immediate as it was even 30 years ago. It's just different now. Well, before we, I want to talk about that because that, that current, you know, the AIDS crisis as it is today, not the one that we actually knew, but it has evolved and changed. Right. But uh, could you talk a minute about uh, another one of my favorite things is Day Without Art. It's it's so it's so obvious to people who go to museums when this day happens. It's December first, usually every year, and each museum might deal with it differently. I found some images of the Guggenheim, where they actually covered with black artwork, so you could go to the museum, but you're not going to see the art because it's the day without art. And has that been an effective? Um, well, it's changed over the yeah, years, but still yeah. very effective. It's very I effective. Mean, um, well, it's interesting to point out that it has. We have done it every year since 1989. And um, what the images that you're showing on the screen, and if people listening on the radio, these are um, images of artwork covered in museums and the Guggenheim Museum with a black shroud over it. And those are from the early years, uh, late 80s and early 90s of this project, when it very much was about removing art, covering up art, closing the doors of a museum or gallery as um, an indicator of the loss that was happening in the art world specifically, but also in general, because of the AIDS crisis, and to encourage people to... That's a to good think. way of saying it, actually. Mm -hmm. It's a loss. Yeah. It is. And so if you and go it, to the museum, you're of, losing mm -hmm. the experience of engaging yeah. with the art. It's a, it's a cool... Yeah. And it's also about mourning. You know, you yeah. the artwork being covered up in black shrouds, the museum having a shroud, it's very much mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Um, -I -I yeah. <laughs> um, and, but the... Organi the, the project, we've done it every year um, since then, but it has very, it's um, changed a lot and it's evolved to kind of represent how HIV and AIDS has changed. So now we call it Day Without Art, but the out is in parentheses, so it's actually a day with art. We actually commission new artwork and work with artists to make new projects that illuminate issues of HIV and AIDS today, and we share it internationally. So originally, you know, there were hundreds of museums and galleries all over the world who took artwork off the wall. Right. Now there are many hundreds of galleries and museums all over the world who show a new project um, on the week. You know, it's not only de December 1st, it's that week. It can be, you know, some museums keep it up for nice, months. Nice evolution. Are they all yeah. HIV positive artists then? Not all. We, we, we always work with um, many HIV positive artists. We always include their perspective and voices in everything we do, but we don't always only work with HIV positive artists because often other artists also 
have a relationship to activism or HIV and AIDS, or their work somehow speaks to it. So, um, for example, this last year, uh, December of 2017, we did, um, a, we, it, for many years now, we've actually been commissioning films, short films, because that's something that you can actually send around the world oh, easily. Yeah. You know, you just email it literally to yeah. people. And it also allows different types of organizations to show it in, however they are able. So, for example, a huge museum like the Whitney or uh, Mocha in L.A. can have a big auditorium with a huge screening and a big audience sitting there. Um, a small aid service organization could show it on a monitor in their office or on their website if they wanted to, and everything in between. So it, it's very malleable. Accessible. To, and accessible, exactly. Very accessible. And it's been very successful. And it's a series. Um, we've, we've had different video projects. We have a series called Alternate Endings, um, which we've done multiple years in different forms. So we had alternate endings. The first one, we commissioned seven artists to make short films that we packaged together. Um, we then, this past year, did something called Alternate Endings, Radical Beginnings. And that actually works specifically with black artists and filmmakers, many of whom um, are living with HIV, um, and then, um, a, but of diverse generations, to make films. And we don't really give them a parameter other than it somehow needs to be about what HIV and AIDS means to them in their life. So, um, for example, an artist who is living with HIV uh, could maybe do something that's really just about their life um, and, and, and how they their feel. Their daily routine. Even at something, yeah. you know, an artist uh, named uh, Mickey Blanco did an amazing piece that's very abstract. That's sort of just about how, he, how they feel. Um, and then an artist, a well-known filmmaker of an older generation like Cheryl Donier, um, made a, a documentary about um, activists uh, in the South who have been doing incredible work um, for years. So there, there were different ways that people illustrated what HIV and AIDS means to them today. So it's continued to evolve. It has continued to evolve. We're, 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 um, it's the focus group with Tim Bennett and John Ash. We're talking with <laughs> Esther McGowan, who's the executive director of Visual Aids, and Pat Owens, who's the board chair. And we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and I want to find out how you're making money. Okay. <laughs> because you need to raise money, and, yes, I'm, and I'm wondering, so, and I'm sure that's a big part of what you're doing, and, and how John mentioned the question earlier about how, how the whole um, movement is evolving, yeah. and so we want to, uh, we want to address question. that. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Thank you. Brought to you by Volkswagen. Visit VW.com to learn more. Focus on the savvy side of 9 to 5 with the Focus Group. And in business a week, I got more money than I know what to do with. Listen, laugh, and learn with Tim and John. Herrera Rocher. He is doing well. Okay, that's weird. Welcome back to the Focus Group. John Nash with Tim Bennett. Joining us is Esther McGowan. McGowan? Yes. McGowan. Yes. McGowan, Executive Director of Visual Aids, and Pat Owens, the uh, Visual Aids Board Chair. All right, so... Um, as Tim said before we went to break, all this, all the good work that you do does need to have a staff and an office space mm -hmm. and resources. And, and, resources. Yeah. Exactly. and I guess that falls to the board. <laughs> it falls to the board. Uh, you know, we have a very, we have a very good board of trustees who are uh, who are very proactive in uh, helping uh, introduce us to, to supporters. Uh, but we also have a really great community of foundations um, and uh, and lots of organizations who really believe in what we do and and and, and fund us. And it's very hard for us to go go after typical funders because we are at the intersection of 
are, you know, art and advocacy. Um, so we're not like a museum or, you know, an arts organization. We're not a service organization. So we're in between. So our story sometimes is very, very hard to, to can distill into something that uh, is readily um, uh, understandable and, and appreciated. Um, so a lot of our work on the, on the board is really uh, bringing more folks um, into the fold in terms of understanding the impact of what we do. Because everyone says, oh, you do art projects, and you know, I know you help HIV-positive artists. I mean, one thing we do, for example, we, do, we still give HIV-positive artists materials grants each year to help them make their, continue to make their work. Um, and um, as we've grown over the years, um, it's really become, uh, it's becoming easier for people to understand how important it is that you know, what we do raises the visibility of artists who don't have the opportunity to show their work, but also raise, continue to raise the visibility of the issues around um, HIV, because there's still a lot of stigma. Uh, and, uh, and, and so uh, we're, we're very fortunate that we have you know, over 30 different foundations uh, um, who will um, offer us grants um, and also so you we have, have a grant writer that's actually well, are <laughs> <laughs> you the grant writer yeah. one of the things that's interesting um, is that the organization is actually very small and mm -hmm. has always been small it used to be two people for many years and then it grew to three and now we're up to five um, and but that's that's big for us well and it's we an have, outsized footprint that you well, guys it is. have and that's for the, the uh, we do really we do many programs and we do a big well-known programs like Day Without Art, as you are mentioning, they're national programs. And so, um, you know, from a fundraising perspective, it's both difficult because we don't have a big staff to write the grants or to do outreach, but it's also really interesting from another perspective, which is that the majority of our funds go to the programs. We have very low overhead. I mean, I'll do the fundraising spiel. <laughs> we have very low overhead, and, um, you know, we all work out of a one-room office. And um, so, you know, our 82 cents of every dollar that someone donates goes to programs. It's a it huge doesn't go percentage to of, a, of a donor dollar. Now, exactly. um, you guys, I know of a couple of things that I love that you do. So earlier uh, in the year, at the beginning of, I want to say the end of spring, beginning of summer, you did your annual gala, mm -hmm. Va Va Voom, mm -hmm. which is an amazing event. <laughs> it's a fun, fun, if you happen is to be- here in Manhattan? Yes, yeah. and it's an amazing space, and it's filled with really cool people that are so happy to be there. A silent auction, some great art pieces, wonderful speakers, and some great awards. And then another event that I really like that I think raises some good mm -hmm. money for you is probably Postcards from the Edge. Postcards from right. the Edge, which yeah. is well, artists create. Yeah, they create. Are they, are they really postcards? Are they little? We send out postcards, right? Four by six, but people can make them in any form, but they have to be four by six inches. They can be vertical or horizontal, but in the, the shape of a postcard. Not They don't have to, they aren't actually postcards, they are little artworks. Okay. And it can be sculpture, painting. Uh, drawing, photography, uh, collage. People it's do an all amazing opportunity to pick up. Now, I know this is going to sound a bit craven, but <laughs> let's, let's remember the key element of Postcards from the Edge. So we have close to 1,500 artists who will send us postcards, postcard, but they sign it on the back. Right. So when we install it, all 1,500 of these postcard-sized works, we have everyone from famous artists like a Marilyn Minter and Ed Ruscha to an unknown artist. They're all displayed in a grid. So the only way you can buy it is by if you look at it and you like it, and you don't necessarily know who made the work. So That's we have so what so yeah. the work so for for a famous artist, um, for example, they, that postcard-sized work could be worth you know a few thousand dollars. All of them are 85 dollars, no matter yeah. no matter what. So. Um, um, the, the, 
so it's a great way for all our community of artists to come together to display their work. But on the day that we have p postcards open, so there's usually a line down the block because everyone kind of knows what they want. Did you guys do a preview? Like, was you there we have a preview party, party the, the night. It's not over the course of a weekend in January. So there's a preview party on the Friday night. Mm -hmm. You can see all the work. And a lot of people like to come and think they sp can spot a famous artist's work. And then they'll get in line on Saturday morning yeah. when the sale opens. And they'll literally run in the doors. So you don't bid on it. It's we have no, video. It's all, no, 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 no. Everything's $85. Everything's $85. And what's exciting is it's, um, you know, any, anyone can make an artwork and submit it. Yeah. So there's no there's no judgment around the work that's submitted. So I, ma I make one. <laughs> yes, you can, you can make one. You can make one. Everyone is there any magic one. around the $85? Uh, it's, you know, it's... Um, the magic is it's a fundraising number. Yeah. I would say that yeah. it's affordable. You know, we want it to be accessible because it's artwork that's made by a variety of artists mm -hmm. um, to begin with. You're more likely to get something by an unknown artist right. than yeah. you are to get one by a famous artist. A beautiful work, but by an unknown artist. So yeah. 85 is, you know, anyone can participate. You know, well, you talked about our, our gala, mm -hmm. and, you know, we also do a gala, but that can be an expensive proposition for some more, more The gala is yeah. certainly more what people think of when they think of a charitable organization exactly. during right. their major exactly. Fundraiser. Exactly. Another event that you guys do, which is not a fundraiser, uh, is the Valentine's. Mm -hmm. well, positive women. Yep. I went to the um, one of the events two or three years ago. It was right after our last gig, and uh, the day after we had that fateful call with the former platform, and I and Pat took me to this event. It was at a paper making studio mm -hmm. in the right around here in the West yes. West Thirties, yep. and it was people making Valentines to send to women mm -hmm. from around the world who are HIV positive. Right. And you spoke at that event, and, and you talked about how the impact when they receive one of these is just... It's really, it's really kind of mind-blowing because what we, we, it was a genesis of uh, the Fire Island Artist Residency, the Dudenay Papermaking um, uh, Studio uh, and Visual Aids, and Love Positive Women. Love Positive Women was uh, a, an or, a, loose, a loose organization of HIV-positive women around the world who really wanted to provide support to one another. And they continue to they have um, teas where they get together, they share emails. Um, and we had this idea of, like, well, Valentine's Day, some of these women just aren't even acknowledged. Yeah. And um, so we decided let's make hand make invite artists to hand make valentines and then send them to the Ukraine, to Sub-Sahara Africa, mm -hmm. and um, and it's really one of the most touching uh, programs that we have because well we send them out and uh, a woman who you know will self-identify and say yeah I'd like to receive a valentine and she'll get it in the mail and then we'll get an email back where it's framed in a kitchen uh, you yeah. know somewhere and the, the the responses we get are just overwhelming and particularly in uh, in the New York area there's a big group of HIV positive women who've been uh, who provide a lot of support to one another and I think you're at their event where some of these women provided testimonials and they, oh. they said when they, you know, so a woman even got a Valentine, she didn't expect it. Mm -hmm. And it was on Valentine's Day, and she was feeling just really sad. And she got that, and it's been hanging in her living room for about five years. I remember her talk, actually, because she talked about, which is what you guys are really doing, which is this illness, this disease, mm -hmm. is a 24-7 thing. Mm -hmm. It's like I said to you when you came in, I have a cold. Yeah. Uh, the head cold's going to give it 72 hours or whatever, exactly. it's going to be gone. That's not the case with HIV, and there are days when you wake up and you don't want to have this illness, and you don't want to be a patient, and you don't. And there are days when you can manage it. And she spoke about one of those days where she really, she had fatigue from being a patient and being someone who had to either talk about it or not talk about it. And and that thing came, and oh my, it was a very cool event. And I think that really puts into perspective 
that action, the Valentines, postcards from the edge, red ribbon, you know, day without art. These are all these are all little emotional touchstones that I think are so important that I do believe many of us are forgetting with the uh, with the rise of the uh, you know the, the new treatments right, and, right. and prep. But it is still a, a, a huge epidemic, and it, and while it may not be affecting gay white men as much as it was in the late exactly. '80s, early '90s, it is still very much in communities of color and and women, and it's it's every person's disease now. It's not just. But it's LGBT also, but it's thing. not diabetes, right? And Correct. So I think underlying our our, our programs <laughs> is that it's not a condition like right. that. Yeah. You want you everyone wants to be. Uh, acknowledged, respected, and loved, and and what we do is you know that uh, underlying a lot of what we do because bringing people together to you know to real uh, let them know that they are whether they're an artist that's toiling away in their studio, whether it's uh, you know a, a woman in the Ukraine, um, they all need to know that you know that their that their lives they're part matter. of the fabric. They, yeah. they, we we value them, and 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 art is such an effective tool to to really. Provide that message. effective, yeah. yeah. And uh, the thing to remember too is there's also a great deal of stigma still. Oh yeah. And uh, particularly in in many places for women, uh, there, women have traditionally had fewer support networks and have had less ways to talk about being HIV positive with each other, with the world, and in certain communities in particular, there's a huge amount of stigma for women. And so part of the Valentine Project and other things that we do working with HIV positive women is um, about reducing stigma as well. And, and if you go to our website, our website, you know, www.visualaids.org, <laughs> um, and you'll see there are so many things going on. We each, for example, each month, we invite someone to curate a show. In fact, I, I, John, I think I put up, um, I put some slides up of a show, a gallery that's up now. I think you will recognize the artist. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. And that's like a mask someone made. These right. are just random things I found. And this this was okay. called Until We Are Free. Yeah. Free the yeah. artwork on the left, the mask, is by an artist named Frederick Weston, who's someone we work with a lot. Fred's amazing. Um, one of the um, things that's really interesting about our archive and online registry of work by HIV-positive artists and also our exhibitions and books and other things that we do is we often highlight the work of artists who aren't necessarily known. So um, an artist who doesn't have gallery representation or may not have ever been in a museum, who curators or students aren't necessarily studying. It gives studying. them exposure. It gives exactly. them exposure, and the archive is actually a way for a curator or someone to learn about artists they don't know about. So um, Fred is um, an example of an amazing artist who um, was, you know, was making art um, in his own, in his apartment, um, in a day program um, for people who are HIV positive, and um, he's many things. He's also a poet um, and is incredible. And so he um, has now, you know, because of his work with us, has he's represented by a gallery, and his work has been shown in the Museum of the City of New York and other places. That's fantastic. So, yeah, and yeah, so I, I'll just give him a little shout out if people yes. want to go on the Visual Aids website, visualaids.org, and go is to it, our artist this, registry. Yeah, That's uh, this is uh, yeah. So these are different uh, artists. Um, it's uh, so um, what Pat was starting to mention was we do. Um, 
every month we have an outside person curate an online gallery, so not something that's in a, gal in a, a bricks and mortar gallery. It's actually on our website. They, all the images that they draw from are in our artist registry. That's ah, one of the okay. okay, so they curate and they, it, and they, they put come it together. Up, and yeah, and they come up with a theme. It's something that interests them. It can be, you know, some, someone did one about the color blue. Uh, someone else did one about HIV criminalization. Uh, you know, every year um, at the time we do the Love Positive Women, we have an HIV positive woman curated, and it's usually about the role of women in, in the artwork. And so it can be about anything, and um, we work with people that are, you know, not everyone's a curator professionally. Some people are writers, activists, But still, but still yeah, exactly. to, to give them the chance yeah, to curate and, it means and, they're going to put their eye to it exactly. and their sensibility. And so, so can people donate at Visual Aids? Yes. Work too, Absolutely. So, yeah. Trying to get down to I know. I really, I love Time's this. Time's a thief. I, know the time. I would encourage everyone to go to our website and just spend a little bit of time just seeing what great work um, our artists make and also just, you know, we accept a dollar, ten dollars, twenty-five dollars, whatever you want to. Yeah, people can give online. Uh, yeah. uh, they can write a check. There you I go. Wanna go. I want to go to that art sale. Go to postcards. Yeah. Oh, on the edge. it'll yeah. be in January. Pat always gives me the heads up. Yeah. 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 You have to let me know. It's so great. Esther McGowan, the executive director of Visual yeah. Aids, and Pat Owens, good friend for many years, <laughs> <laughs> is. Uh, well, thank you for joining us, and be sure to go to uh, visualaids.org. Uh, to learn more. We also have a link posted at our Facebook uh, page, which is Focus Group Radio. So thank you guys for coming and in. And thank big you. thanks for all your amazing contributions to the you. community. It, 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 it makes a difference. Thank you. We want to thank our friends at uh, Deep Discount for supporting us here on the Focus Group. Be sure to go to focusgroupradio.com and click on the Deep Discount logo. Arr, the shark. The <laughs> John and the pirate, can do, or the, the leprechaun, can do one more. One Top more. of the pride, and then we box pride. them up and we put them away on the shelf. Yeah. And uh, thanks, thanks to our friends at uh, Volkswagen of America. There's uh, some great new cars coming out toward the uh, summer and fall season. Be sure to go to VW.com to learn more and select the car that uh, should be on your list if you're out looking for a car. John and I are going to be doing two road trips later in the year, so uh, be careful out there. Eyes peeled. Keep your eyes yeah. peeled for us. We want to thank John and Garrett for, uh, for bringing us out uh, via the magic of... Uh, I don't know what we're doing. The internet's right. <laughs> free, free media. Free, yeah. <laughs> free media. So thanks everybody for joining us. Happy Canada Day and Happy Birthday America next week. We will have a live show, not live, recorded we'll show, show for the Fourth of July. Everyone have a great week. Take care. Oh, don't text and drive. Arrive alive. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot the. Uh, I think John, got John gave me a face. <laughs> what are you doing? It's The Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash, formerly on Sirius XM Satellite Radio and now accessible on all platforms. Subscribe, like, and rate us on your platform of choice. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. That was a stunning focus group.